Hi, welcome to Loops, the podcast brought to you by Caribou Projects. We're an arts collective based in Bristol, and each episode we collaborate with a guest artist, cultivating conversations around social histories, folklore, visual arts, music, and everything else that falls between the cracks. My name is Ben G.J. Thomas. I spend my time teaching, writing, listening, and working on collaborative projects across the city of Bristol, often exploring what it means to live in a time of environmental trouble. I woke up this morning to find the city still, little movement and indistinct weather. After frittering away most of the morning, I disentangled myself from the contours of my flat and headed outside. I drove south, out through the housing estate and past the edge of the city, where the buildings begin to dissolve, replaced by a uniform rhythm of wheat fields that run along the road down towards the coast. Beyond lies the Severn Estuary, a polyphonic expanse of water that pushes the horizon backwards, creating space to be filled today by a Tetris game of container ships, awaiting their turn to dock at the nearby port of Avonmouth. A couple of months ago, I came across a notice board likely put up by the council during a more utopian time of public education. There were big italic letters and a drawing of an eel with what can only be described as a grin. The board explained how eels start their life in the Sargasso Sea, just north of Bermuda. They travel along the Gulf Stream, up the coast of North America, then out across the Atlantic. As such, eel populate river systems on both sides of this ocean. Some are labelled American eels, some European, yet they begin their life together in the Sargasso. Here in the River Severn, young eels, often called glass eels or elvers, arrive on a high tide in late spring. They choose to call this river home for many decades, before returning across the ocean once more to reproduce and ultimately die. Whilst eels are often imagined as slippery, since hearing the story, I found the creature to be nothing but sticky. I can't shake this tale of eel crisscrossing the Atlantic, out of sight below the surface, yet on occasion close enough to be felt. Whenever I've had the opportunity, I found myself returning to the estuary banks, looking out over the muted surface of the water and imagining the many worlds that might lie beneath. I'm here today. Just to my right, I can see Hinkley Point Nuclear Power Station. It is composed of a series of low-slung rectangles that make little impression on the surrounding skyline. Any sense of the sublime is buried so deep inside that one is minded to pay little attention. Pipes extend out into the turbulent waters, through which water is drawn to cool the nuclear reactors. Eel often become unwitting passengers carried along these pipes and pressed against filters, before, if luck will have it, being dumped back into the muddy waters that surround the station. The effects of this detour, including the rates of mortality, remain unclear. Gaining a clear picture of what occurs in a body of water this large and murky is never without challenge or contention. What is known, however, is that eel numbers across the world have been plummeting since the 1970s. There is no singular threat. They suffer from loss of habitat, blocked waterways, environmental pollution and overfishing. In addition, as the seas warm, the Gulf Stream itself, relied upon by eels for their migration, is beginning to weaken. For these creatures to flourish once more, it is increasingly apparent that an altogether different world is needed. Standing here today looking out, I feel sad. I feel really sad. And yet this sadness is complicated by the very human acts of violence that set sail from these shores. The Seven will forever hold the memory of the transatlantic slave trade in its waters. In addition, the river also marks the site from which John Cabot set sail in 1497, landing in Mi'kma'ki, the territory of the Mi'kmaq people, on the east coast of what is commonly known today as Canada. Cabot's journey laid down a marker that led to the colonisation of indigenous lands, along with the violent destruction of indigenous ways of living and being. Whilst the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade is kept alive in Bristol today, this other history remains largely unspoken. Storytelling can be powerful, though. Can we tell stories that unravel these complex threads of violence, speaking and listening with care, being mindful to never assimilate, remaining with the trouble wherever it leads us? And can eels help us in this endeavour? These creatures have played a crucial role in shaping lives across both shores of the Atlantic. How might thinking with eels enable us to recognise the past, as well as the ongoing violence of the present, whilst taking tentative steps towards imagining a future otherwise? This is the question I'm setting out to ask. Mm-hmm. 
So my name is John Dwight Greenley. I am a medieval historian. Um, I just completed my doctoral degree at Cornell University, where I wrote my my doctoral dissertation on eels in English history um, over a really long span of time, from the eighth century up through through the seventeenth century, really. Uh, and I got to eels quite accidentally, actually. By training, I'm a cartographic and map historian, and I found eels on maps, um, eel ships actually on maps of London and wondered what they were doing there. And the process of trying to figure out an answer to that question led me down the series of rather long rabbit holes that wound up with me um, trying to piece together a sort of cultural history of, of eels in England. Uh, so my name is Michael Millay, and I am a lecturer in the English department at the University of, of Bristol. And I first came across eels uh, in a pub. I overheard someone talking about their incredible life cycle. And not long after, I was hooked, so to speak. And um, since then, I think that was about five, six years ago, I've been thinking about eels, looking out for eels, writing about eels. Uh, they've very much been on the brain. In early and medieval England, there's not a lot of hard currencies, not a lot of coins circulating around. And those that are tend to stay amongst the nobility and people with a lot of money anyway. They're trading them back and forth mostly as a status symbol. So if you're a landlord and you're collecting rent from your tenants, uh, most of the time you're collecting it in in-kind rent. So in grain or ale or honey or um, eggs or eels. And eels are among the most common in-kind rent in early medieval England. Um, and not just the most common in terms of number of rent, but also some of the biggest numbers. There are hundreds of thousands of eels moving around England uh, in rent every year. You know, at the, at the end of the 11th century, there's more than half a million. Partly it has to do with the fact that there's not a lot of hard currency, and so they're taking in-kind rent. Part of it has to do with the fact that eels... Uh, are a really good food to eat during Lent or other religious holidays where you're not supposed to eat meat. Medieval understanding of eel biology was that they were asexual, that they had a kind of spontaneous generation. And so that made them really good for times like Lent where you weren't supposed to be thinking about worldly desires or sex. And that's part of why you don't eat the meat of, uh, of cows or pigs or, or goats or anything else, because flesh meat is supposed to make you think of carnal desires. There's sort of both fiscal reasons why eels make for good rent, but also theological reasons. There are a bunch of places, especially in early medieval English writing, where you can see very explicitly the writers using eels as a as a metaphor. And I think one of the best examples of this is is late. It's one of the last ones too, but it's a guy named Thomas Bradwardine, who was very briefly the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he died in the in the Black Death in 1348. And a little before he died, he wrote a handbook of memory, a guide for how to train your mind uh, using sort of typical medieval mnemonic practices where you memorize a word by thinking about other words or other things that remind you of it. And towards the end of the book, he gives you a full sentence after having walked you through sort of all the different stages. He gives you a sentence to work with. And the sentence is about the English king laying siege to the city of Berwick in Scotland. And so he walks you sort of word through word through the sentence and he says, okay, to remember this word, think of all of these possible things. Um, and he gives you a lot of different examples because for mnemonic memory to work, it has to work with what's in your head. So for the word king in the sentence, he says, okay, if you want to remember the word king, you could think about the king, picture the king, or if you know a guy named king, that would work. Or if you know a guy who looks like a king or who dressed like a king or whatever. And he does this with all of the words in the sentence, except for England. And when he gets to England, he says, when you want to remember England, think of an eel. Think about the king holding an eel. And it's the only uh, mnemonic example he gives for England is eel. So if you want to think about England, think about eels. And so it's a really interesting space where he's using the fish to think about um, the people and the place in a very explicit way. They're slippery. They're also very tough. They're tenacious creatures. I came across a book written in the mid-1800s, and had a wonderful way of describing eels as being tenacious of life. Um, so they are slippery, they, they slip through our concepts and our ways of thinking about the world. At the same time, they're, they're tough and hardy and canny in all sorts of ways. My name is Tom Van Doren, and I'm um, an associate professor at the University of Sydney and uh, also at the University of Oslo. 
Uh, and I think of myself these days as a field philosopher and storyteller. And I guess the, the idea of a field philosophy really just emerges out of trying to take the questions and the approaches of the discipline of philosophy into the field to uh, to talk to people, something that philosophers don't don't always do, but probably should, uh, and to experience and immerse ourselves in, in the actual landscapes, the actual lives that we are writing about, and to I guess to to quote or riff off Isabel Stengers, to do our philosophy in the presence of those who's for whom it matters. So this creature of change and slipperiness and metamorphosis is also a creature that's attached to place. And they, they do this wonderful, elegant thing of reconciling what we normally think of as opposites. So flow on one hand, attachment on the other. Promiscuity and rootedness. Open borders and love of home. So, you know, when we're talking about what eels allow us to think, I think they allow us to, to transcend categories that we often get stuck in, where we say you're either this or that. Eels are always asking you to have both, <laughs> both and. Um, hi, my name is Rebecca Thomas. I am from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I am Ilnu of the Mi'kmaq Nation. My dad calls me Swift Fox. I am a poet. I am an activist. Uh, and I'm a bit of a policy brain as well, um, having done my graduate work in settler colonial indigenous relationships. Canada has also really done a very poor job of educating the Canadian public about, uh, you know, the atrocities of colonization and, and the decimation of Indigenous communities here, right? It's only probably been within the last 10 to 15 years that you've seen any sort of discussion about this. You know, you have the colonization of Canada happening, there's movement into the West. Um, we have our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, who him, along with Duncan Campbell Scott, were the architects of something known as the residential schooling system. And so what this was is that it was law for about 150 years that Indigenous children were taken into these kind of industrial schools where they were uh, Christianized, um, they were punished for speaking their language. There was a lot of experiments that were done on Indigenous children, so nutritional experiments, things like this. And that with the founding of what was the Northwest Mounted Police, now the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or the RCMP, that one of their original mandates was to enforce the residential schooling system. And so you would have Indian agents in the RCMP would come into communities and take the children away from their parents and place them into these schools. And so a lot of folks think that, oh, well, this must have happened a really long time ago, but the last residential school in Canada closed in 1996. And so my father went to one of these residential schools where he went from the age of five until 10, and he went in speaking only Mi'kmaq and left speaking only English. Um, and within these schools, there was a lot of violence. There was mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. These schools were horrible, horrible institutions. And, and that was a mandatory piece. So it was an estimated about 150,000 Indigenous kids went through these schools um, and roughly around 8,000 of these children died. Uh, at the time, children had a higher death rate of going to residential schools than soldiers going to World War II. So there was a higher chance of dying in residential school at the time. To kill the Indian in the child, that was the kind of mantra of these schools. Um, and so there was about 90 of them in operation at its peak across Canada. And so you have these Indigenous people now um, through generations of generations of generations of going through these schools. And now we're trying to kind of operate <laughs> and act as like cultural experts and all these sorts of things. But we're still, you know, dealing with a lot of these kind of intergenerational trauma pieces, you know, things like addiction, things like um, reclaiming language and a lot of like lost language. Right. So we have a lot of our languages are in Canada are um in danger of going extinct. Um, and so things like understanding culture and bringing it back to things like your question around the eel, 
language is such a huge part of our worldview that when we're trying to look at these cultural pieces, we need to do so through our languages. But with our languages, you have generations of people who no longer speak it. Me being one of them, I'm learning it. It's very difficult. So this is kind of like the stage of Canada Indigenous relations right now. And it was only when I was in university did I even hear about residential schools. Like that's how effective they were at keeping this as a secret. My father went to one and I didn't know until I was in my 20s. Um, one, that these schools had existed and two, that my dad went to one as a child. And so you have a lot of Indigenous people who are trying to relearn our stories. So, so long we have been being force-fed one particular story of success um, and there hasn't been a meaningful exchange. There hasn't been, you know, a relationship built on reciprocity, which is what our treaties, at least from our side of understanding, was that these are living documents. There is a sense of reciprocity. Like, you know, Rita Joe, who is a famous Mi'kmaq poet, has this poem called I Lost My Talk. And at the very end, so she said, she says, you know, so I gently offer my hand so that I can, you know, teach you about so I can find my talk and teach you about me. And and I think that that we need to have people have that softness and that, that to understand and to let us now speak because we haven't been able to exchange stories that it's been taking and taking and taking and taking or being told that this is the way it is and shut up my way or the highway kind of thing and so now I think it just comes to listening and listening with earnesty instead of listening and waiting for your turn to speak. I guess storytelling is I think particularly important because it's it's a mode of engagement with the world that is, well, as, as many people have, have written about, it's, it's memorable, relatable. It's, um, it's the, a kind of way of conveying information that is compelling to our hominid brains for some reason. Um, and that in itself, I think, is, is powerful and important. But the, the thing that really appeals to me about storytelling is its capacity to hold together complexity that there isn't a need for stories to be resolved that they can be multi-voiced they can try to weave together i think good stories anyway to weave together complexity and difference and to hold it in tension without necessarily having to resolve it and at the same time they can do that in a way that pulls that complexity into uh, encounter with with an audience however they experience that story and and through that encounter transforms them makes them um, responsible in new ways i think we can't obviously or it's very difficult to unlearn what we what we learn and so to come to know about the disappearance or, or the, the decline of eels or or any of the numerous other species that are disappearing around the world today is to be pulled into an encounter that and there are accountabilities that come with that encounter um, and and so storytelling i think is is part of how we stage those encounters i think eels are very good at confounding our orthodox or conventional ideas of how the world is put together uh, as as you know they undertake these extraordinary migrations from the Sargasso Sea in the Northwest Atlantic Ocean, and they come all the way from the Sargasso to uh, the rivers of Europe and North Africa. It's a journey at minimum of 3,000 miles. And when eels undertake that journey, they're no bigger than a grain of rice. So it's an astonishing thought, uh, 3,000 miles of open ocean with uh, all the, the extreme weather you might have in the Atlantic and the um, tremendous waves and uh, the various predators um, and the swirling currents. For this grain of rice to make it all the way from the Sargasso to Europe and North Africa is a pretty miraculous feat. In undertaking that journey, they also cross all sorts of political and geographical boundaries. They, they cross time zones, they cross national fishing territories, they cross all sorts of um, lines that nations and governments have drawn 
and incised across, across the world. They don't need a passport to come to the places that humans need passports for. And that's interesting to me because it suggests that there might be other ways of organizing how we think the world is connected. Or, or to put this another way, eels ask a question of us. And I think the question they ask is how might we reimagine boundaries and borders so that they are nested within larger ecological systems, so that our borders become bioregional rather than politicized. I think that's something that I'm fascinated by. Uh, eels slip through concepts, but they also slip through borders and, and the lines we've drawn across the world. And, and so they, they provoke a question, how might we reimagine lines of connection? Um, the Mi'kmaq word for it is the gift of multiple perspectives or two-eyed seeing. So the idea that, you know, you see the way the world exists in these multifaceted viewpoints and realities all at the same time, right? Um, I guess maybe the best equivalent to it in perhaps like uh, a different or social science context would be maybe intersectionality, right? Like how that may be a bit like that, that this is Mi'kmaq territory and it is at the same time, you know, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, you know, Prince Edward Island, like that sort of thing. Like it's these multiple things and how they exist. And so this idea that within two-eyed seeing, if we're going to find a way where we can move forward together, because that is very much my belief, I can't say to all the non-Indigenous people like GTFO, like go back to wherever you came from, like understanding that there are generations and generations of people here who were born here and that this is their home. And sharing is a really important process. But, and we might have entered into those agreements through peace and friendship treaties, but that's not what's been upheld. And so this idea of Eduoptimunk is that if we can kind of come through and take the best of all of these worlds to then move forward in a way that allows for that kind of equal representation, then I think we would have a much more equitable um, country and society, right? And so that's, and that is the challenge though, right? Because so everybody wants to think that their worldview is best. Stories help to shape worlds. They're not mirrors held up to reality. They are processes of, of storying, of worlding that, however significantly or insignificantly, intervene in our understanding and help to make the world otherwise. So for me, um, the work of storytelling is central to how I, I take up this work of hopeful mourning, if you're mournful hope, if you like. But I think there are, are multiple diverse ways in which, in which that can be done. Eels are, by, by volume and by, uh, by price, the most smuggled animal on earth. The eel trade from Europe to Asia. Um, Interpol recently called it um, Europe's ivory trade. It's about a, th you know, it's about a three billion dollar a year black market industry. It, it's, it's about a quarter of the elvers coming into Europe every year are smuggled to Asia and glass eels are smuggled to Asia in suitcases, basically. And then they're grown there and then they're shipped all over the world. Even the ones that are shipped, uh, that are not smuggled, that are, are shipped legally, um, pay attention to the trail that an eel takes to get from where it's caught to your plate is is a fascinating journey. So in the United States, there's a lot of eel fishing in Maine, and most of those eels get sold in China. So if you catch a glass eel in Maine, it then gets sort of shipped down to New York City and put on a plane and taken to China, where it's grown for a couple of years in a pond. Then it's shipped to Japan as a sort of full-size deal, where it's butchered and maybe sent back to New York, where it's sold and then carted up to where I live in upstate New York. So like, if I go to a Japanese restaurant here and I eat an eel, it's had odds are it's had this sort of real ridiculous journey that has a huge carbon footprint. I, I think paying attention to that is one of those places where eels can be instructive to us into how to rethink the way that we're we're living in the world, right? That the sort of systems we've built to do what we want to do, right? To to eat eels when and where and how we want are broadly destructive. Um, not just to the eels, but to all 
kinds of other animals and into the climate. As part of my research into eels, I've been spending a lot of time at Severn Beach. And I, I would go to Severn Beach initially just to see what the birds were doing, to see what the light was doing, to go for a walk and to just to yeah, stretch my legs, I guess. And over time, I realized that I would go to Severn Beach and not really think about the fact that I was going through Avonmouth first. And when I looked out at the wonderful estuary at Severn Beach, I looked for the steep home, you know, islands in the middle of the estuary, or I looked at what the tides were doing. And I wasn't looking at the cargo ships that were coming in and out of Avonmouth. And that, that got me thinking about, okay, what's going on in this estuary? It's, it's a place where elvers arrive in April in their millions as they're sort of funneled up the Severn Estuary and, and as they ride the tides up that river. At the same time, it's a place where jet fuel is coming from the Middle East on these massive cargo ships and where cars made in Japan are being unloaded uh, to be um, placed in these huge car parks by, by Avonmouth. It's also a place where migrant workers are being paid a pittance to work in distribution centers uh, and factories. So you've got your Amazon fulfillment center there and your, your Tesco distribution centers. Uh, so I started thinking about what is this estuary? What, and it's, it was a very complex question. What is this estuary? It's a place where the eels are making us rethink the map of the world. It's also a place of globalization and late capitalism. And the cargo ships are, in a sense, going over old slavery routes as well, as they come from all over the world. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. And so that image of the, the translucent elvers next to the shining jet fuel from the Middle East, those both belong to the same place, and yet they're doing very different things, aren't they? Um, one, one of the images is about continuity and process and the eel's instinctive journey from the Sargasso to, to Europe. And the jet fuel is wrapped up in all these questions of, of capital and the reconfiguration of the world by multinational companies and by by modernity, by processes that we feel we can't control, but that control us. There's an interesting website where you can look at the various ships that come into different ports around the world. And there's one for Avonmouth as well. Um, and sometimes I'm just interested because I, I go to Severn Beach and I'll look at what birds are there. You know, there'll be interesting migrants that have come from Scandinavia. Um, or special geese that birders get really, um, yeah, revved up about. But then I look at this website and see, oh, there's been, I don't know, a cargo ship from India carrying cars, or a cargo ship from, from Cyprus carrying who knows what. And I guess after I made these connections, I was thinking about who has the privilege to go birding at Severn Beach? You know, because I go there with my binoculars, and I... Um, I geek out on, on the birds that I can see there, but I go for leisure. And I notice that there are people who go to Avonmouth, and it's not for leisure, it's for work. Many of them are, from, are migrants, and a lot of them don't speak English. And I realize they're having very different experiences of this estuary. It's true that I sometimes feel like a, a, maybe a bit of an exception as someone from an uh, ethnic minority group myself who's also looking at, I don't know, um, the red shank with my binoculars. Um, I'm sometimes, I sometimes feel out of place in what is a very white kind of space. Mm. At the same time, I realize I, I have a ticket to Severn Beach that my fellow passengers who are working for a minimum wage don't have. Mm. We're on the same train, but we're bound for different places. Never 
is indigenous ways of knowing and being as a theory of society ever looked at and being like, you know what? I think it would be really great if actually everybody just did this because it's better, whether it be for the environment, whether it be for learning styles, whether it be for through community supports, that sort of stuff. It's like, you know, native people can't do anything native. Now native people do things native in secret. Now we'll allow these little bubbles of indigeneity to come up within these very Eurocentric notions of operating. Um, and then I'm waiting for the next stage of like, actually, maybe if we organized our societies in these ways, according to these indigenous theories, because these are good, like, this is the thing is like, these are good theories. Like, that's what people don't get like seem to look at it's like they go oh well, that's good theory for you because you're indigenous it's like well actually if you operate it this way too like it would probably be for a benefit what i think really emerges out of attending to uh, multi-species relationality to our co-constitution is that we, we rethink these questions of what it is to be responsible and, and lots of scholars especially in feminist science and technology studies and and allied fields have been thinking about that in terms of being response uh, response able uh, the capacity to respond um, and i think so, so much of of how we respond to others and of our ability to respond to others um, ethically to take up responsibility uh, emerges from the kinds of beings that we are, which are the, the product of evolutionary heritages, of cultural inheritances, of particular individual education and privilege and all of these other things. So to attend to, in my particular field of ethics, I think to attend to multi-species relationality is to completely transform this question of responsibility into one that it, that pays attention to how we become the kinds of beings that are able to respond and how we might change the ways in which we respond, how we might uh, learn to respond differently. As, as Vincien Depre puts it, learn to be affected otherwise, to become otherwise responsible. Uh, and that is something that is, that is constantly shifting and, and emerging differently for each of us. Attending to them becomes a core part of, of asking this question of what it means to be responsible and how each of us might take that up in our own particular way. And so we have this term, and I don't know if you've ever heard it from any of the lectures and whatnot, um, it's called nadugalum. So nadugalum is the way in which we see ourselves as a part of the world when it comes to resources and survival and whatnot. And the, the best English equivalent translation to nadugalum is, I cannot take too much. And could you imagine if like the entire like global you know economy that is rooted in capitalism switched to I cannot take too much. Like all of a sudden the way in which we see the world and how we interact with it would fundamentally shift. I cannot take too much. And again that goes back to that very pragmatic way of seeing the world, right? So this idea of taking too much is not rooted in some like false sense of like piety of like, oh, I'm such a good person and blah, blah. It's like, it doesn't make sense. So it's like, well, why, if I am, you know, caring and having to take care of these things and have to carry them around, why would I have six chairs? It doesn't make sense. I don't need, it, it does, I just need this one thing. This is all that I need. Like it doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense. Like why would I take all of these things? I do not need them. Like when I think about how toilet paper was being bought up at large at the beginning of COVID-19 and it's kind of like, but like you don't need that. Like that's impractical. You got to store it. You got to make sure it doesn't get wet. You have to pay for it. Like you're you're taking too much so imagine like you cannot take too much like it just fundamentally changes the way in which you you interact and so instead of allowing well we will allow indigenous people to operate with nidugulum but we won't look at any of the way and the rest of the way we operate with the nidugulum and then you have indigenous people being like mm, maybe you should <laughs> like it might do a, the world a good service if you cannot take too much
Well, it's the period we're living in at the moment is now sometimes referred to as the sixth mass extinction event. And I, I think that's in some ways a very helpful frame, in other ways not so much. But it's it's a period in which species of all kinds are disappearing on a staggering scale at what's often estimated to be 100 to 1,000 times the rate of normal background extinction that goes on as part of evolutionary processes. So it's a it's a... It's a loss on a, on a massive scale. But I, I think zooming out in that way, tr- telling that kind of big picture story makes it a pretty unrelatable uh, event. And so part of what I think we, we also need to do in, in, in thinking through how this current period matters and, and what's going on now is to, to slow down with, with each of those unique species. Um, that, that there is, I think, no singular extinction phenomenon, that each species leaves the world in its own particular way. It's usually characterised by a particular kind of unravelling of relationships, of possibilities that, um, that come to an end with, with each of these species. And then I think zooming in, if you like, even further, we, we have to note that each of those species is itself comprised of numerous individuals. And so... An extinction is made up of often, not always, but often of um, numerous individual deaths or failures of reproduction. And so these individual um, lives and the struggles of the, of the organisms that, that comprise the species are also part of what is at stake and being lost at the moment. So I, I think there's a, a need to try and hold together uh, all of those layers or levels, if you like, of loss, um, and to think about how they, how extinction ripples out into the world to draw in countless other beings, human and non-human. They're trying to hold on to to all of that unraveling, all of that remaking of the earth that's going on at the moment um, in this sixth mass extinction event is, I think, well, obviously impossible, but it's a challenge that I think we need to to try to take on nonetheless and it has to involve storytellers of diverse kinds, artists, cultural practitioners, scientists, local communities um, to to do that work of ongoing attention and care, of bearing witness to the um, this unravelling of our contemporary moment. So I have uh, two very good friends of mine. Um, They run this kind of program. It's called Reclaiming Our Roots. And it's um, based off of like back to the land um, notions of like understanding, you know, the land that has shaped your culture, right? Like that's one, that's like, so that's a really important thing to think of when you think about Mi'kmaq culture and land um, is that, you know, we didn't name the land. We didn't shape the land. The land shaped us right? And they are the folks who are doing this kind of traditional back to the land, understanding that traditional isn't just beaded earrings and ribbon skirts, but rather that traditional is also knowing the land and, you know, what's on it and how does it sustain you? And I, I don't know that stuff, you know, like that's not something that I grew up with. And they said, do you want to come eel sparing? And they, and I was saying, yes, I'm really interested. This sounds really wonderful. They said, I think you should come. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put myself out of my comfort zone. They show up at my house and they have these poles with these like metal kind of spear attachments. That, imagine a rake that ha- that curls inward on the bottom with spikes that kind of curl up. Um, and so they have these poles on the top of their truck and they, you know, get in and then we drive for like two hours out to um, this estuary. And we go out there and you know, they get, they put their toboggan, which is also like a Mi'kmaq, like an indigenous invention, <laughs> right? Uh, they throw on their, you know, their spears and their, their gear and everything like that. And we go out onto the ice and it's freezing cold. I'm wearing like snow pants and a parka. It's, you know, wind chill of like minus, you know, 18. Um, and it's like, all right, like we're here, we're here for the next five or six hours. Like, let's have some fun. And so they cut a hole in the ice. And again, like that kind of new traditional, old traditional, like we weren't using, you know, rocks to do this. We had a chainsaw. <laughs> and so we cut this like square hole in the ice. Um, and James um, starts explaining. And he says, okay, so what you do is you you put your, your kind of like your spear in like straight up and down and you kind of 
like jam it into the muck and like you haul it up and you can feel like the suction of the muck kind of holding onto the right bit. And then you jam it down and you, you know, as you're doing it, you're rotating it a little bit um, each time. And then you're kind of, as you're rotating the spear, you're also starting to widen your circumference. And so the reason the spears are so long is because you're standing in front of one little tiny hole here in front of the ice. That's maybe, you know, 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters. And you're, like at an angle, like ramming the rake, you know, 15 feet away from the hole, like underneath the ice. And he says, he's like, you're just doing this over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually you will find an eel. And when you find that eel, you better haul that spear up quick because, you know, an eel's going to get out of it. They get really slimy as one of their defense mechanisms. They get really slippery and they kind of wiggle their way out of the rake. So, you're doing this, you're doing this. And it's very monotonous. It's very physically demanding. I was getting blisters on like the insides of my hands from like constantly hauling this rake up. But then all of a sudden I jammed it in there and I at first, I knew it wasn't a rock. I knew it wasn't a stick. Those tricked me earlier on in the day. I was like, oh, I have one. I pull out this mucky stick and I was like, oh, it's not a meal. Um, and yeah, the whole pole kind of vibrates and you're like, there's something moving on the end of this rake and you haul it up out and there entangled in the rake is this like this eel and it's 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 such a cool experience because like in this moment you know you're you're like wow like this is something like I just I just think it's very overwhelming like I think about you know my dad going to residential school and having his language stripped from him and his culture stripped from him and being punished for being like being born like being born indigenous in Canada it was being born like less than uh, as a crime. And that still continues today. Um, and yet here I was doing something that every, like every major old white dude that has led Canada in the last however many hundreds of years would not have want us to be doing. And here I am doing it. And I know the, the eel, its name is Gadu. And I, you know, we're gonna make Basau, which is like a traditional Mi'kmaq meal with the eel. And we're gonna do, and, and it just felt so like such an act of defiance of this overwhelming sense of, and if I'm, I'm gonna swear and I'm sorry, but like, fuck you. Like we are still here and look at us. <laughs> and like, we're laughing and we're healing and we're coming together as a community. And you know, me as like this kid who was totally fractured from a huge, huge part of who they are is now like learning to do this. It just felt so like badass. I appreciate those parts of the past that hold on. Um, where we can see we can see elements of cultural survival that, that go back a really long time. It's, I, it's one of the things I really loved about the fact that those eel ships were on the Thames into nineteen thirties. But also, there are still a handful of people in England who fish eels in the same way that um, their, their fathers did and their grandfathers and their great grandfathers before them. Going back, some of the some of these families have been fishing eels going back before the Reformation, and. I think that's worth holding on to. Um, I think every time you sort of make a technological leap forward that abandons those sort of elements of your past, I think it's really worth taking a, a moment to think about what you're losing because you are losing something. You're losing a part of your sort of cultural past as well. And I think those, I personally, I think those are important to hold on to. The hope that we, uh, that we get and maybe the hope that we need um, at this juncture in the kind of and the transformation of the planet um, is one that is able to reckon with loss as an ongoing process, uh, as one that is has already happened and will continue to happen, one that takes responsibility and bears witness, um, that is hopeful that things might be different or might at least be as, as good as they can possibly still be, uh, whatever that might mean and how that might be cashed out differently or taken up mean different things for different beings to for the best of possible worlds um it's hopeful that 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 might still be possible but i think what what bearing witness and, and what a mournful hope does for me is to say and this is something that deborah bird rose uh, wrote a, a lot about um it's, it says that even if great change is not possible there is still an obligation to to bear witness there is an obligation not to turn away, um, but to acknowledge what has happened and our own complicity often in it, 
and to be there for others and to tell those stories. That's the second part of bearing witness, to, to actually speak uh, and to, to share those stories with others as a, as a record and acknowledgement of what has been done here, what has happened here. So I think it's a, it's a strange kind of hope um, that I'm clinging to and, and outlining here. And it's a, it's a sad one in many ways, but that is the reality of much of the world in which we live. But I think there is an awful lot of, um, well, at least I find great comfort in the notion that this is important work that whether or not it achieves great change, uh, the work of storytelling, of bearing witness, of doing what we can really matters. And that, there's a, a beautiful quote from James Baldwin that I think captures a lot of this where, where uh, and I'm going to paraphrase him badly, I think, but where he says, um, all is not lost. Responsibility cannot be lost. It can only be abdicated. And I think it's it's that emphasis on doing the work, doing what we can in taking up responsibility. Uh, it's in those relationships that I find hope, whether or not they, they bring about some great change. Like, I mean, it just comes down to, I think, thinking about humility. Like this notion, like to believe that we, that 50 million, you know, pound or a dollar, like award, that like that like we there is you know we can do this like we know everything we'll be able to stop it I think there's like I think everybody could do with a big dose of humility to just be like we don't know the answers let's start working together let's try things I think we're so scared to to try especially big huge organizations like countries and economic systems to try something different um, because if it fails, like the scrutiny and and the I told you so's come out and it just stalls all progress. And so this, I think this like willingness to be wrong um, and to be humbled, I think is something that is incredibly necessary for these conversations to happen and 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 be willing to recognize that notion of nidugalump. Like, do you need to have a house that has, you know, four toilets in it? Like, is that necessary? Like, you do need to have like a huge manicured yard. Do you need to have two or three cars? Do you like, like, like again, like that notion, like it is possible for you to take too much, right? And to have the, the, the humility to acknowledge that. I'm back in Bristol, thinking about the many conversations that have occurred since I began to let my thinking be led by eels. I'm reminded of the writer Elizabeth Povinelli, who teaches that if one is to understand life in an age that is so connected, we must learn to follow the trails, only ever remaining here-ish. To understand eel, it is first necessary to understand the worlds in which they are entangled. This podcast has followed the eel across history and geography, paying attention to notions of power and often violence. So what can be learnt? I can only speak from my own perspective that of a white person standing here in a city that still benefits from the ongoing legacies of colonial violence. Many of the lessons held within this podcast will come as no surprise for communities whose experiences have often been actively suppressed. For me, however, I will take away two ideas. Firstly, to build relationships otherwise, both between humans and other creatures, we, and by we I mean those who occupy historic positions of power, must listen first rather than speak. Secondly, it has taught me to slow down. We cannot rush to find answers without first recognising the many injustices of both past and present. Think with eels, listen first, and take time to act with care. Since we recorded this podcast, a lot has happened in Mi'kma'ki. Indigenous fishermen have found themselves under attack whilst trying to uphold their rights. Rebecca sent us this update. Currently right now, you have this Beganegadi First Nation um, which is a Mi'kmaq band that have started their own moderate livelihood fishery, um, which is their right to do so. Because in 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada came down with what is known as the Marshall decision, where Donald Marshall Jr., who was a Mi'kmaq fisherman, was caught fishing eel at a season and was arrested for that. Um, and he challenged that as a Mi'kmaq person, it is his right, according to the Peace and Friendship Treaties of 1752, that he 
is allowed to fish um, because he has an inherent right to do so. And it was um, established in those treaties. And so in 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada agreed and said, yes, Nyingma fishermen have a right to fish for a moderate livelihood. Um, however, uh, they did not define what a moderate livelihood is and they didn't implement it. So even though it is legal for Indigenous people to fish, um, according to a, a moderate livelihood, there is no clear definition of what that is. So on September 17th, 2020, Sebag and First Nation started their moderate livelihood fishery and all hell broke loose. So you have non-Indigenous fishermen who are cutting trap lines and leaving gear in the water. You have uh, Mi'kmaq boats have been burned. You have had vans set on fire and then a lobster pound. So there's various lobster pounds that fishermen store their catch in, um, thousands and thousands of pounds of lobster. And so there was one specific lobster pound where an Indigenous fisherman was trapped inside by about 120 non-Indigenous fishermen who were throwing rocks, who were threatening to hurt him, to burn him out, who set his car on fire, slashed tires. The RCMP were there. Uh, they didn't do anything. And then that lobster pound was burned to the ground um, the following day. And so right now there is a court injunction that just came out this morning that said, you know, all violence, like you have to stop that, that non-Indigenous fishermen cannot interfere with um, Mi'kmaq lobster fishermen on the water or on the ground. But that just came down today. So we shall see where this leads because right now, you know, we're trying to hunt and fish according to Nidugulum. Like I cannot take too much that we are part of the system, but I think that non-Indigenous fishermen take too much. And I think personally, I think that they're afraid that Mi'kmaq fishermen are going to fish the way they do. And I think the way that they fish is inherently problematic because they do take too much. Thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more information about this episode and our contributors, you can head to our website. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to be notified about future episodes, then subscribe on your platform.